I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep on a particular topic or perhaps to have a more broad-ranging conversation with a particular person. And today, we have on the program the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Mark Galley. Mark Galley was a part of the evangelical elite for more than 20 years, first with Christian History Magazine, which is a Christianity Today publication, and for seven years as editor-in-chief of the flagship publication itself, Christianity Today. But on December 19, 2019, a day after the United States House of Representatives voted to file two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump, Galley wrote an editorial. That editorial was called Trump Should Be Removed from Office. The publication noted that Galley's criticisms of Trump were entirely consistent with the magazine's approach to previous impeachment proceedings, those against Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. That may be so, but the editorial nonetheless created a firestorm. A few weeks later, Galley retired from Christianity Today, and in 2020, he announced that he had departed evangelicalism altogether and become a Roman Catholic. However, Galley's voice is still being heard in the evangelical world. He's continued his popular article, The Galley Report, and over the past few weeks, he's struck a chord again with a series of articles about what it means to be an evangelical elite. Who are the evangelical elite? What do they stand for? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have evangelical elites defining issues and setting agendas for the church? I had this conversation with Mark about these and many other topics last week via Zoom. He spoke to me from his home near Chicago. Well, Mark Galley, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to talk to you about these uh, this series of articles that you wrote. Um, I guess you could, we could put them all under the category of evangelical uh, elite evangelicalism, which I think is actually what you call the series. There's um, there's three of them, and uh, or I guess sort of three of them. Uh, you know, one one originally, and then a part two, and then and then a kind of a third response. So um, let's go ahead and get started with just a simple question. Why? Why did you think that this was a topic that you wanted to um, wanted to explore? And were you surprised by the response? Because not only were you getting a lot of, you know, responses in the comment sections, and I imagine some personal emails, but I know, for example, the Gospel Coalition devoted a, um, devoted a segment of their podcast to, um, to the topic as well, referring pretty, pretty closely to your article. So so that's the big question. Why? Well, I, uh, there was a phrase from an article in the American Reformer that caught my attention that I use as a pullout quote to begin my thoughts on it. Unfortunately, I just wasn't thinking clearly. And in that quote, specific people were mentioned, Beth Moore, Russell Moore, and uh, uh, David French. And um, 
I actually have no beef with those three people. In fact, I admire them all in different sort of respects. But there was something in the middle of the quote that made me think about a lot of the thoughts have been brewing in my head about elite evangelicals for some for some years, for some decades, in fact. And I thought it would be an occasion for me to just put an exclamation point on that, those thoughts, and just run with them for a little bit. Uh, it, the blowback, or the the I was surprised, frankly, at the amount of attention that the piece got. Some of it was because people were came to the defense of both the Moors uh, right away, and I, I had to clarify immediately that I wasn't. I'm not questioning anybody's individual specific motives when they are taken with wanting to be impressive to the culture. It's just a temptation that afflicts all of us, and especially those who are in elite positions. Um, but then there were some people who agreed or disagreed, and then there was some uh, a good friend who is the publisher of a you know fairly major thought outlet in evangelicalism who took me to task personally in emails. Essentially saying, uh, you ha- you know you have no right as a now now as a person who's been converted to Catholicism to speak about evangelicalism anymore. And I just thought, well, no, not really. I spent thirty years in evangelicalism, and I have no fundamental hostility to it whatsoever. I have great praise and admiration for it, in fact. But it has these flaws, like does my newfound Catholicism many deep flaws, and I just. I, feel like I have the right to speak to those as much as anyone. Yeah, well, um, I, I do too. And, um, and you know, one of the reasons why I read your articles with great interest. And I would also just observe that this idea of, uh, of kind of an elite class within evangelicalism or within Christianity is not a new idea. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, I don't know, probably 60 years ago now called The Inner Ring. And I'm just wondering if you've read that essay and if you've if you um, had um, any, if you had it in your mind whenever you were writing this, uh, you know, basically C.S. Lewis warned against the dangers of uh, of um, uh, that we all, um, or this tendency that we all feel to be in the inner circle, to be in the room, to be at the table, whatever that table is, whatever that ring is. Um, and in your case, you are, I guess, referring to a particular, uh, this desire among a certain class of evangelicals, and I might even argue that you and I at different times in our lives have been in that class, that um, want to be taken seriously by the mainstream culture, by the elite um chattering class of the secular world and that we um, kind of view a, um, a um, that, that, that there's a moment at which we have arrived whenever we're quoted in the New York Times or the Washington Post or maybe even have a byline there. And, and you were saying, I think what C.S. Lewis was saying in some ways, that there's a real danger in that. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, first of all, I would affirm that's what I had to clarify in my second edit- essay was that, yeah, I'm, I was part of that part and parcel of that, subject to all its its strengths and its weaknesses. And I participated in those. And as an editor-in-chief of a major outlet, I know I no doubt fomented some of those strengths and weaknesses, sometimes intentionally, maybe sometimes unintentionally. The other thing, of course, is to recognize that every culture and subculture has an elite. I, there, is, there is no large movement that doesn't have a smaller group of people who, in a sense, either formally or informally take leadership of that movement. 
and in the among the evangelical elite. Now, I have I have thought about it since, and I think I would qualify that. I would add one adjective to that phrase, and I would call it the evangelical establishment elite, because there's different segments of evangelicalism with different cohorts of of people who kind of run who have deep influence in that movement. The Gospel Coalition uh, you mentioned is one example. There is a group of men, and it is mostly men, uh, and organizations within that world that exert a tremendous amount of power and influence in that world. And I don't begrudge them that power and influence. No, there would not be a coherent movement if they didn't have an elite that tried to, to do that. So among the evangelical establishment elite, I'm talking specifically about that group that uh, are in leadership positions in establishment evangelical organizations that were founded in the 1940s and 1950s and have grown and matured in various and sundry ways. We're talking about Christianity today, Wheaton College, Fuller Seminary, University, uh, World Vision, uh, National Association of Evangelicals. Okay, and these these uh, these tend to be a certain they tend to represent a certain group of evangelicals. They tend to be um, even though they're rightfully categorized as left of center, probably in many of much of their politics and theology, they're fundamentally conservative institutionally because they're in charge of these large institutions that do have a lot of influence but also require a tremendous amount of income to keep their ministries going so while some of them may even be personally liberal or progressive within those elite institutions they're not interested in turning the world around or upside down they're gradualists and they're institutionally conservative uh those are some of the characteristics I see in them and I see in me. I mean, I was discipled as a young, I began my work at Christianity Today when I was 33, I think. And I was discipled in that world for the next 30 years. So much of my personality and the way I do things and think about things has been deeply shaped by that way of being a Christian and being an evangelical. And I have no qualm saying I'm still very much an evangelical, except for my association with things Catholic now, my personality, the way I approach things, I'm a gradualist. <laughs> I'm institutionally conservative. I tend to be left of center in much of my politics and theology. I'm deeply sympathetic to that world. But no, I also no. see it has this one or two significant flaws that make me deeply sad. Yeah. Well, uh, ju just for the record here, you say you're left of center, but but you are, you've been, um, very vocal, at least uh, when you were writing at Christianity Today, that that theologically uh, you are um, orthodox in your adherence to historic Christian doctrine, and uh, on some of the, I would say, two of the biggest issues um, that evangelicals care about: the life issue and the marriage issue. You're not left of center on those issues. Not, not at all. No, not at all. No, I'm very. Uh... No, I guess I would say when it comes to issues like immigration policy, uh, I'm not sure what else I would think of offhand, but certainly on yeah. abortion, on uh, the authority of scripture, on <laughs> adherence to the Nicene Creed and uh, human sexual, the Christian, uh, the church's teaching, traditional teaching on human sexuality. Yeah, that was, those were non-negotiable for me. And, and I will say for many people, in the evangelical establishment, those are continue to be non-negotiables. So, 
Yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's interesting to me, and you didn't say this out loud, Mark, but I'm wondering, especially in light of the famous or infamous, however you want to say it, uh, Donald Trump editorial that you wrote, uh, I do wonder if there is, uh, if one of the things you're criticizing, uh, maybe as a subtext or subliminally, is this conflation of politics and theology, which is to say that a lot of evangelicals are willing to throw even though they might claim and you know uh, adherence to the authority of scripture and inherit uh, you know uh commitment to life and marriage that um they're they're willing to put those on a back burner when it comes to choosing their political leaders number 1 and number 2 at least in public conversations in the public square those become what many evangelicals are known for is that there is their political allegiances and not necessarily their theological allegiances. No, that is correct. But, and, but the thing I, I, and I, the way you phrase it is exactly right. As long as we make clear that I think that's a temptation on both the left and the right, both the left and the right, and even the left of center, we imagine that, especially those, I would say this is an especial temptation of the evangelical establishment elite is we imagine that the way things have worked in our lives is that we've read the Bible and we've studied our theology and out of that has arisen our particular way of understanding politics in America in particular. Okay. In other words, it might, it might motivate us to stand for certain issues like life, like traditional or against certain issues and in certain yeah. ways and make certain types of compromises because we are, in fact, believe that we are adhering to and promoting the politics of Jesus. What we don't, uh, what we don't see is that how much of our political commitments are driven by things that are that have happened before, or around, or in spite of our theology. So, for uh, one example, I give is uh, I was raised by a family that was politically liberal. Uh, my dad was a union man, and he uh, was always, uh, you know, talking about the needs of the down and those who are down and out. I remember once I, as a young boy, I was playing war with some friends, and I called people of Japanese descent, I called them Japs. My father heard that. He just laid into me, and it, it was burned in my conscience that you just don't use demeaning language for people of other races or ethnicities. Now, I've grown up to be a Christian, and I have I can give you many theological and biblical reasons why I have a compassion for immigrants and the sojourner. Uh, but I'd be lying to you if I said those arose from the seed of my reading about Jesus. And now this is a politics of Jesus. I think it's in accord with what Jesus teaches. And it's somewhat driven by that. I, that's probably true. How much of it's driven by my father's lecture so long ago? That's true. And they, these things get all mixed up so that what happens among the evangelical leaders, we say our politics are driven by the politics of Jesus, but the politics that disagree with us, they're obviously been compromised by politics and culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is all of us are tempted to be uh, compromised by politics and culture. And we all constantly have to check our political ambitions and political preferences against scripture. But there is no, uh, for the evangelical elite to pretend like their 
you know, or I should say our, our view is objective, biblical, rational, and the view of those who are different than us, sometimes radically different than us politically, are driven by nationalism and fear and politics and racism. That's what I find deeply saddening when I see evangelicals. And unfortunately, the, the recent article by uh, Pete Wenner uh, in the Atlantic Monthly traffics in this very forces of darkness and forces of light type w- way of thinking. In fact, that's going to be the subject of my next essay and the gallery report, because I find that it's just, uh, it's unfortunate because it only drives the division between us ever more deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of trying to drive an understanding of how we each come to our political and theological convictions. Well, I want to come back to that idea in a minute because I do want to, um, you know, get to a, uh, right now, I guess we're focused more on diagnosis, but I would like to maybe pivot and talk about prescription at some point, which is to say, what do we do about all of this? But before we do that, um, one of the other criticisms that, uh, came out of your first article, which you addressed somewhat in your second article, was um, the, the the criticism that you were throwing your former employer, Christianity Today, under the bus, along, you know, along with other evangelical elites, you might say. Um, first of all, um, do you think that criticism was fair? How did you how did you respond to it? Well, I do think it it would be fair if, in fact, I named or was so specific about individuals that they could be identified. Um, So I don't happen to think I was doing that. I was just, they were a convenient way to show examples that I, had I been spent 30 years at university or Wheaton College, I could in fact use illustrations since Wheaton College is just a mile away and I've been close friends with many professors there. I could have given many examples there. Uh, But my philosophy on that is, Never give identifying characteristics of something that's that seems to be a general trend. And the fact that Christianity today has within it a what I consider a pretty healthy mix between some pro- younger progressive uh, evangelical Christians, some older conservative evangelical Christians, and that there's a constant dialogue going on about what we should t- publish, how we should publish. Uh, I don't think it's as particularly and the one example I used of a couple of staffers who were deeply troubled by a, uh, an editorial on masculinity I wanted to run. I don't particularly look down on them for disagreeing with me or even disagreeing with me strongly. It only indicated to me that there was this subterranean level of anger and frustration with what they would call patriarchalism in evangelicalism that I had not identified and was more pervasive than I thought. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. they're evil for thinking that. I don't think they're wrong for thinking that. I might disagree with them about it, but I'm not throwing them under the bus and saying, aren't they pitiful, sad people? It was more, it's more, they really, they, me and they really disagreed about something important. Yeah. And that yeah. this is part of the subterranean world of evangelical elite culture right now. So I do apologize to anyone who felt like I was attacking them personally. 
And that's mostly a result of my inadequate ability to write clearly sometimes. Yeah. Well, I want to return to a through line in all three of the articles, and that is, that, again, that that there is a certain uh, group within this evangelical elite that that is looking for acceptance by the mainstream culture. And, you know, you use the example of getting a byline in the New York Times or whatever as as a, um, you know, just one indicator of that. But you, you also write this. Um, you you. You say, rarely, if ever, will you see an evangelical byline in such outlets that argue to protect life in the womb or affirms traditional marriage. In other words, in some ways, um, even those that are looking for that that cultural and, and I'm going to I'm going to use maybe some inflammatory language, Mark, and you can walk me back from this um, from this edge, if, from this cliff edge, if if it, if necessary. But in some ways, evangelicals are serving as useful idiots to the mainstream media. They are the, the, the issues that we really care about. They would never publish us. It's only the issues that suit them are they willing to give an evangelical a byline. Am I, first of all, am I representing that argument correctly, or would you nuance that? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I would walk back the line about useful idiots. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the way I would identify with that is, is that all journals do that. All journals and outlets do that. That's They all have a worldview and a philosophy that they're trying to promote in one form or another. So Christianity Today would often feature secular scholars or Jewish scholars who were making a point that reinforced some key element of evangelical biblical scholarship or theology. Uh, They were, in a sense, useful to our readers in that regard uh, because it reinforced some of the things that we did believe. And there was people from the outside coming in saying, yeah, you're right about that. Okay. so, for example, you might quote or even give um, a platform for a secular scientist who might say that science doesn't really get you all the way to uh, a coherent theory of origins, uh, and therefore a you know a religious uh, understanding of origins is actually perhaps more coherent than the best that science can offer in that regard. Is that a fair example? Exactly. Well, we, I remember us publishing a, a Jewish scholar of, of, of Paul, the apostle, who made some really pen, had penetrating insights into Paul's theology, even though she didn't happen to be Christian, but she had some penetrating insights based on her, her historical critical research. So, yeah. so when the New York Times publishes a piece by an evangelical uh, decrying uh, evangelicals for not getting vaccinated or being slow to take up the cause of ra- uh, racial justice. Uh, basically, the New York Times is saying this is, this is something that's really important to us, and if an evangelical can come on board and say it as well, all to the good. But it would be very, very difficult for them to entertain the idea of an evangelical coming along and basically saying, the New York Times stance on life, on pro-choice and pro-life and all that is just is dreadfully wrong that's just not going to happen yeah uh, and i yeah. just think i th- i think uh evangelicals who want to be published in the times and the atlantic monthly etc we they know that extent instinctively anybody who enters another organization and knows it has a certain kind of worldview and certain policies you don't just step in there and blast away it's, if you expect to have a seat at the table uh you basically read the temperature you decide when to step in and say something 
I mean, in these articles, a lot of times the evangelical writer will note that they are pro-life or they will note that they are uh, given to traditional sexuality. Uh, and that's allowed. That's perfectly fair. But a full-fledged argument in that, it would be. I, I, at this point, I would have, find very, very difficult to imagine it getting published. And I think the, what I'm cautioning we elites is whenever we do have a seat at the table, of course, it's prudent to not say something so inflammatory we never get invited back. Duh. Uh, but also to recognize there's that constant temptation to take the issues that we find most important and really engage us most passionately to cool off for the sake of getting along, going along, to get along, getting along, to go along. Yeah. Uh, that's all. I, w- I want to... Um bend the arc of our conversation just a little bit, uh, Mark, because you, you, there's a paragraph in your first article that really arrested me, and I'm going to read a portion of it. Um, uh, taken out of context, let's just stipulate for the record, it's a long article, but I do, I, I do want to um, just pull this out and ask you to comment a little bit more. Uh, you are talking about the, the Um, you're specifically talking about Christianity today, and you say this, um, uh, when it comes to the issue of pro-life or the morality of homosexual unions, you say this, but as the years have gone by, we've seen more CT articles, Christianity Today articles, uh, talk about how complex such issues are and that there are no easy answers. You've got those in quotation marks. Um, and I couldn't agree more. At the same time, anyone who has studied the decline of mainline Christianity knows that such are the first signs of ethical retreat on an issue. It starts with no easy answers, moves to here's an exception to eventual full acceptance. Um, and I, I, I was arrested by that because um, not all slopes are slippery, but some slopes are slippery, and we should be aware of that. And um, it strikes me that, uh, you know, while, while there are no easy answers, uh, in some cases, there are some issues that have simple answers that are just not easy to work out in the political and cultural context in which we're called. Yeah, yeah. And I do, yeah. You know, I have been, uh, the other spheres of the world, Christian world that I have been nurtured in or lived in, embedded in for decades, one was the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, and the other was the Episcopal Church. Well, let me pause you there because you you were originally ordained in the Presbyterian Church, but over time, if I've got this right, and then over time you were you migrated um, eventually to Anglicanism before you converted to Catholicism. So there's been a, a progression there in your life as well. Yeah. But for years, for uh, the first thirty years of my church life uh, after graduating from seminary, uh, was involved in mainline liberal denominations, Presbyterian as a minister, and then Episcopal as a layman. I, and, and I've spent a long, a fair amount of my time uh, reading about the history of these denominations, participating in their life, and seeing what was uh, both vibrant and orthodox denominations slowly drift into kind of a a liberalism that uh, just doesn't have much distinctiveness or, frankly, interest to many people. And one of the reasons it's 
uh, the, both those denominations, among many other mainline denominations, continue to shrink and fall away. What they what they be, what they became in many respects is like uh, the Presbyterian Church became, in a sense, the Democratic Party at prayer when it came to General Assembly pronouncements about what uh, Presbyterians should and should not support. Uh, this struck me as uh, a loss uh, because the fact of the matter is, I, uh, there were many of those. General Assembly initiatives I happen to agree with, uh, but what struck me as really a problem was it we lost our distinctive voice in the culture because we just began to mimic mimic the prevailing political and social agenda of the era, uh, and this is one of the reasons why this happened was because Presbyterians and Episcopalians in particular had a seat at the table, uh, the cultural. Uh, literary, political, and uh, educational seat at many, many tables across the culture, and uh, there was, there has been that, there has been that drift, there has been that slippery slope. Uh, just because evangelicals claim adherence to the author- authority and inerrancy of Scripture, etc., doesn't mean you know they're not immune from that uh, sliding on that slippery slope. The only way to really be to prevent the slippery slope is to is to admit we're on a slope. Okay, we're always on a slope, and you have to be intentional about not sliding down. Yeah, and you have to be intentional about what's happening when you're making writing editorials and giving sermons and uh, advocating certain things. What 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 the danger is of of doing that? Not that you don't do it. Not that you don't write an article and say, hey, we need to have more compassion for women who have had abortion. Of course you should do that. You just realize whenever you enter into that territory, you, you have to continue to be clear about what it is you, you stand for. And that's, that's just an ongoing challenge. I mean, yeah. this, is not, this, is, this is not rocket science and it's not new, like you said. It's, but it is something that I was frankly concerned about the whole time I, I was in Christianity today. And I think one of the reasons I was hired was because I was sensitive to that side of the tension. Uh, I made it very clear in my interview as managing editor that I thought there were times when uh, Christianity Today had kind of not not with the most careful forethought had entertained articles that would miscommunicate to readers where the magazine actually stood on some issues. And that I thought we ought to have a more clarion call for classical Orthodox Christianity in many of our articles that was left fuzzy for the sake of nuance and, and complexity. And they hired me, and I assume they hired me because they wanted me to bring that to the table. Yeah. And for a season under your editorship, there was a Where We Stand column uh, in the magazine where on the uh, journalism pages uh, there might be some of that complexity, but you would often put a stake in the ground on what biblical orthodoxy teaches on that issue. Or we'd have, uh, you know, we tried to share that responsibility. And I can tell you in particular, when it came to the issue of pro-life, Matt Reynolds, who's the book review editor there, (laughs) my gosh, I would always turn those essays over to Matt because he had, he had the most beautiful and powerful way of expressing a, a pro-life con- and fresh and fresh way of expressing a pro-life conviction. It was, it was just wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, I, 
Mark, let me pivot again because we're going to run out of time here pretty quickly. And and uh, just among the evangelical elite, even there's this fragmentation. You you know you mentioned um, Beth Moore and Russell Moore and David French and others, but there's you know there's a there's a fragmenting even within evangelicalism right now. And um, you know each each kind of group ha- claims a tribe. Uh, many of them have their own publications. There's World, there's Christianity Today, there's the Gospel Coalition. Uh, you can find evangelicals at places um, like Patheos and the Federalist and others, the Dispatch, which is where David French writes. I mean, um, for years, Christianity Today kind of was that the voice or, or the organ of evangelicalism. Has that time passed? Is there is that is that era gone? Yeah, I think that era is gone unless people in each of those groups decide. Now, hear me. Let me get on my pulpit here. Unless they decide to take Jesus' prayer of John seventeen more seriously, and that is that we be one as the as He and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's really easy not to be one and to sure display how we're distinct, how gospel coalition is different than Christianity, is different from world, it's different from the Southern Baptists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's fine. I, I think that plethora of ways of approaching and speaking and living out the gospel, I'm I tend to think that's that's healthy. What I find unhealthy is the increasing tendency of each of those groups to be suspicious not only of the views, some of the theological and political views of these other groups, But you see early signs of them basically thinking, assuming that those other groups aren't real Christians. They aren't Mm -hmm. real evangelicals. And if if we'd see some of those leaders say, hey, we've got some pretty serious differences here, but we also uh, were called to try to listen and try to understand one another. We don't have to necessarily join forces in one big union church, (laughs) but can we lower the level of the bickering and the questioning of other people's motives and theology and figure out how, what it means to be one in this context, but no one of those groups is going to be the voice of evangelicalism anymore. Though you did say or suggest that possibly the gospel coalition had the uh, raw materials to be that group in the future. Did I read, did I read you right? Yes, because um, because of their Calvinism. Now, obviously, as a Catholic, I don't have a lot of sympathy with many parts of Calvinism. Uh, but Calvinism is a force to be reckoned with. It has intellectual breadth, depth, and coherence. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Now, it, it in its history, has, rege- has generated, has or, uh, reverted to kind of a doctrinal legalism and a dry theology that doesn't seem to have much interest in the life of Christ, the life of, you know, the life of Christ. So it has all those temptations as well, but fundamentally it's, it's a theology that, as I said, has breadth, depth, and that has the ability to stabilize it. Whereas evangelicalism otherwise uh, is very much driven by kind of a revivalist, um, if I might put it this way, I don't want it to sound too derogatory, but a revivalist sentimentality. Evangelicals, for the most part, are people who love Jesus and want to serve him in the world. And uh, 
Theology, for the most part, has taken a backseat in many evangelical traditions. Action, doing works for the Lord, and participating in spiritual moments in which there is kind of an enthusiasm and a love for Jesus that's generated. You see that in the charismatic, Pentecostal, the revivalist movements. Uh, but those don't have, those are obviously subject to the winds of, wind and changes of doctrine because they're driven by more sentimentality, spirituality. Whereas uh, movements like a Calvinism uh, tend to have an intellectual and theological grounding that gives them more hope. Now, since I wrote that, I've had other people say, Gospel Coalition is just as subject to the temptation of accommodation as anyone else. <laughs> of course, of course. but And that was mere speculation. You know, I just have a lot of admiration for the Gospel Coalition and uh, for a lot of people in it and for what they're trying to do and what they what they teach. I can agree with a tr- tremendous amount of stuff that they teach. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, and we, I, I will admit, when Gospel Coalition got up and running, it, you know, its executive producer is a graduate of, of Christianity Today and learned his journalism there, uh, Colin Hansen. He's a brilliant young man and a tremendous journalist. Uh, and they were producing articles that I would often look at as editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and say, darn, we should have published that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, any kind of final words in closing? Did, this, did these articles... Um, I mean, what was your goal to diagnose the problem, to um, um, to uh, prescribe a cure, or just to start a conversation about about the dangers of of um, evangelical elitism, or or the danger that evangelical elites face whenever they try to whenever they value the approval of the mainstream culture too much. Probably a couple things. One is I did spend 30 years of my professional life embedded in Christianity today and therefore embedded in a lot of elite evangelicalism in that world. And I, I grew from it a lot. I learned a lot. And I do feel like it's one of my responsibilities as a senior statesman, so to speak, to share my reflections on what I see as the state of the movement. Because I'm no longer embedded in that world as such, uh, I really can't take responsibility for the future of it. And besides, even if I was embedded, if I was still a member of an evangelical church, I'm, you know, I'm past the age where I should be having that type of influence. There's, that's for the younger generation to kind of figure out. I'm, my goal is to give my perspective based on my history and my understanding of church history and recent church history, put it out there and let the leaders of the movement now decide what they want to do with it. It's uh, as a, as a Catholic, I am jealous that the evangelical movement remains strong and vibrant because it is one of the allies in some of the great cultural intellectual battles of our day. And I would not want to see it too compromised by, by, the, by the cultural drift of our time. So I have a self-interest in it being a successful and long-lasting movement, especially on the issue of human sexuality and pro-life, among other things. Uh, but mostly it's a, it's a matter of, okay, I spent all that, my last book, what, when did we stop loving God is essentially the idea of the book, uh, was, was also my, after 30 years of reflection on evangelical spirituality, here's where I see a gaping hole. Okay. We're tremendous activists. We are the activists with capital A, uh, but our activism gets in the way of our actually loving God, or we use substitute our loving God with our activism. That was my kind of speech in that book. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Mark, it's probably unfair for me to ask this question as my final question, but um, um, what? so be it. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, uh, while, I, while I take it face value, your statement just now that, um, you know, it's probably not your role at this point, both in terms of your migration to Rome and also uh, your age to, uh, you know, plot a future. I, I would maybe ask, as you look back um, during those years, whenever you were, um, you know, um, the editor of Christianity he had one of the bulliest pulpits uh, in evangelicalism. Um, to what extent do you repent of either contributing to or not arresting some of these pathologies that, that you're identifying today? Well, I... Uh... First of all, in, in self-defense and self-justification, which we all love to do, I did write quite a few articles on this temptation of evangelicals to pander after the elite, to look down their noses at more conservative evangelicals. And anyone who can read, will read the editorials, will see I, I brought that up plenty in the magazine. And when I was asked to contribute to like the book, Still Evangelical, that was one of my contributions to that book. Uh, that message apparently fell on deaf ears. I was not as persuasive a, 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 a writer as I would have liked to have been, uh, and it was an uphill it was an uphill battle to move in that direction. Um, that being said, and I did a lot of things among the staff. For example, there was a lot. There was a fair amount of snobbery at times about evangelicals. A lot, you know, a lot of people came to Christianity today so thankful for the fresh breath of fresh air being willing to entertain all sorts of topics from an evangelical point of view and not feeling so constricted. And there was a lot of temptation to have negative talk among the staff and certainly among our people who wrote for us about bashing evangelicals, usually meaning conservative evangelicals. And so for the longest time I had on my door a sign that said, love your evangelical as yourself, as a way of saying, these are part of our world as well. And are, we're required to respect, love, and honor them, even while we might disagree with them. So I did try to do some things, but in the in the space that I've had in retirement, I look back and I thought, you know, yeah, I mean, there were lots of reasons why there were times I didn't push the envelope on that, but I do regret that I didn't push it harder at other times. Uh, anyone who, I mean, that's one of the benefits of retirement is it's really easy to look back and see what you should have done when you should have done it. Uh, and I will not pretend that I, that I was a, uh, you know, a paragon of virtue in a, in a larger organization by any stretch of the imagination. Then I wish I would have done some things differently, um, for sure. No question yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, I re respect and appreciate that perspective. The older I get, uh, the more, um, I shake my head whenever I hear people say that they look back at their life and have no regrets. If, if you look back <laughs> at your life and. And have no regrets. You you've been you've been sleepwalking through your life, and you you've not been engaged probably in an adequate degree of self reflection. Um, so yeah, there's always that. Well, Mark, listen, uh, I've taken I've kept you longer than I intended to. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate these articles. Um, wish you the best in your dotage. And uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, clearly, these articles indicate to me that uh, that uh, your dotage is not complete because these were nourishing and thought-provoking articles. So thanks so much for them. Appreciate it. Yep.
You've been listening to my conversation with Mark Galley, who just wrote a series of articles on evangelical elites for his column, The Galley Report, which you can find on the media platform Substack. Before we go, a quick reminder that this show exists because of the generosity of readers and listeners like you. We take no money from the ministries we cover. There's no advertising on our website. We are completely listener and reader funded. If you'd like to make a donation to Ministry Watch, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate tab up at the top of the page. Hey, and if money is a little tight right now, I get it. In fact, I've been there a time or two myself. But you can still help the program. Just rate us on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the higher we rank with search engines. And that means other people can find us more easily. Rating us takes just a second, doesn't cost you a dime. It's a free, easy, and an important way that you can support the Ministry Watch podcast. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.